like to think about that word this morning. I promised Amber before the service that I'd pick on someone older this morning. It's been a while since I've had my penmanship graded. So uh, I'm going to ask Rochelle and Don and Ellis and Dan. I want you to take a good look at that word. And I want you to give me a score from 0 to 100 on my penmanship this morning. And think about that because I don't want the, the others as they reveal their score here publicly in just a few minutes uh, to impact your evaluation of my penmanship. Perfect. It's a perfect day, isn't it? Perfect spring day. We use that expression many times. Matter of fact, we have a bank teller. It's her favorite cliche, I guess you'd say. Dwight's nodding his head. I think he knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. About every other word is perfect. You know, she asks questions and it's perfect. Perfect. Nothing wrong with it. We, I probably have some idiocracies too that are probably maybe more annoying than that. Uh, but uh, I thought of her when I started preparing this sermon. Um, are you in perfect health this morning? Uh, you look healthy. Um, I hope you're in perfect health this morning. Physically, are you perfect? What does a physically perfect person look like? Uh, well, we probably all have some flaws, physical flaws. I'm, uh, I'm missing my tonsils, better or worse. I have a brother-in-law that was uh, deemed uh, unfit for the military. That would be Dan and Darla's dad. He's missing his tr trigger finger. When the uh, draft was in, in force yet, he went for uh, his physical, and as soon as he saw his first trigger finger from the knuckle up was off, they disqualified him. They said, that won't work for us. And uh, So, perfect. What is perfect? And uh, I want to bring this to some spiritual applications later. Uh, wondering if my uh, victims have a score already for me. These are all former school teachers. Rochelle, do you have a score for me? Ninety-five. Well, I like to be your student. It's probably the highest, highest I ever gotten penmanship. Dan, what about you? Now you have this. Don't let the others affect your thoughts. Eighty-nine. Eighty-nine. Wow, that's still pretty good. I'm still happy. How about you, Dawn? Well, that's okay. Your husband and wife, so you should think alike. Eighty-five. Oh. I was counting you old folks to be a little early. <laughs> oh, I made the E wrong? So it doesn't matter how it looks, it's how you go about doing it. Oh, okay, that's a technicality. Because the penmanship teacher didn't always see you writing it, they just saw the finished product, at least I thought. Well, the last class, the, the latest I took penmanship was in ninth and 10th grade. Anybody else ever have penmanship in ninth and 10th grade? Okay, well, maybe I am old-fashioned. Anyway, we were going to Reams. My last two years were at a Mennonite school, Reamstown Mennonite School, and Brother Her, and some of you would know him. Davey would know him. Dennis knows him. He decided that the whole class, their penmanship was so bad, he said, we're going to do a special penmanship effort here. And so he called in Mrs. Whitmer, and some of you know her, too. But uh, So she gave the whole class penmanship. And we grumbled about it. We complained about it. We felt like we had a heavy enough workload, and then here was his penmanship thrown on us yet. And uh, by that time, our thought, our thinking as students was that our uh, skills were already, uh, you know, we were 
they were already honed in. And were we going to change? Probably not. I don't know. Well, so they, they came to us with a, a bargaining chip. They said, okay, you get a certain score, and I don't remember what the score was. On your exercise, on your paper, then you can drop out of the class. You want to guess what happened? Anybody? Within probably two weeks. Dwight. Probably everybody got a good score in a couple of weeks. No, not everybody. The girls did. All the girls did. So all the girls were dismissed from penmanship class. So there was 12, 14, 15 of us boys. They're stuck doing penmanship yet. Now, today we call it discrimination or prejudice or whatever. And I don't really remember how long we continued doing that. But uh, we, we continued on for a little while. Not that it was kind of a sore spot for me for a little while. I, I think I've gotten over it. <laughs> but, uh, and, you know, I, I probably still need a little help. But I was pleased with the scores you gave me, except for Don and Ellis. I don't know. <laughs> I might have to work on that in a little bit. But Anyway. Well, even in my vocation, uh, the dairy industry, thinking about perfect, you know, the perfect cow. And some of you dairymen can understand where I'm coming from with this. Uh, you know, they're always the classifiers, the registered breeds. They're looking for that perfect genetics to make the perfect cow. And uh, there, there never was scored a perfect cow ever in the history of the organization. A cow, it's a little bit like penmanship, really. A cow never got it, was ever scored 100%. I think the highest ever scored was 97 or 98. I'm not 100% sure on that. Never 100%. And uh, so these classifiers, these people that are going around looking at the cows, they, they got to talking about this and said, well, what really would the perfect cow look like? Now, again, that's subjective. Again, like penmanship, it's subjective, very subjective. Uh, but so they, they put a committee together and they said, we'd like to have a, a picture of what the perfect animal, <coughs> pardon me, the perfect cow looks like. So they went to Minnesota native here, Bonnie Moore, and they gave her the assignment to, to paint a picture of what the, the perfect cow combination cow and bull both, would look like. That would produce a perfect genetic offspring. And so she was assigned that. I don't remember how long it took her to do it, but she said they became so much of a part of her, she actually gave them names, uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, the cow and the bull together. And uh, you can see them, Prince, if you want to uh, see them. But, uh, uh, you know, so they're, they're looking from, from a genetic standpoint for the perfect animal. And uh, I was thinking about that. You know, how perfect are we? Well, physically, we all admit we have some physical blemishes. We're imperfect. But, you know, when it comes down to a spiritual application, how perfect am I this morning? How perfect are you this morning? I'd like to, in the first part here, and you might say, well, that's not possible to be perfect spiritually. Well, I'd like, you to, I'd like to challenge you a little bit on that. There are some scriptures, there are some examples in the scripture of those that were, that God gave that testimony that they were perfect. And uh, so I was challenged this morning as I looked at, I want to look at some examples here in the beginning uh, of some examples of those that God called perfect. Then the last part, I want to look at developing perfection in our own experience, in our own life as well. First one, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. You know, none of us would argue this morning that we live in a less than perfect world. There's so many imperfect things out there. How, how could we be perfect? We're, life is never perfect. We're never dealt the exact uh, right situation, right details in life that we can continue to be perfect. We, we're we're going to goof up somewhere. Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 is God's testimony of Noah here. 
these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, I, looked, I went to Vines and tried to look, and I, I couldn't find Vines' exposition on that word perfect exactly. I, I should have checked it in Strong's, but... Uh, you know, the idea that God gave that testimony that he was perfect, he walked with God. And I, I like Matthew Henry's idea about what God is telling us here about Noah's example here. He was not sinless. He did not express sinless perfection, but rather, and this is Matthew Henry's quote, but rather a perfection of sincerity in serving God. And I think that's a key you know, when you and I think about being sincere, it's talking about honesty. It's talking about being real. It's talking about being genuine. It's talking about truth. Uh, those, are, those are aspects that will guide you and me into a perfection, especially as it relates to spirituality. We think of being honest, think of being real, think of being genuine, and think of being true. Those are, those are things that are going to keep us uh, and guide us into a spiritual relationship that will be a quality that will develop perfection in our relationship with God, just as it did here for Noah. And I, I was thinking about that verse, you know, could God give that testimony of, of me this morning or of each one of us this morning? Read that verse just quietly to yourselves right now and put your name in there. And how does it sound? Does it sound right? Well, you do that. I think we all have that potential. I really do. I have that potential. But I need to remember what is, what is involved in that. And when we're talking about perfection this morning, we're not talking about that idea of being sinless. Because we know from the scripture that we all have sinned. We're not perfect. We are, we are brought into a less than perfect environment and world because of our, our forefathers. <clears throat> remember those aspects that will guide you into perfection. Well, the second one is in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 6. First Kings 11, verse 6. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Now that the word perfect is not actually used, but it does use the word, it makes a comparison between a son and a father. It says that Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and then it talks about his father, and he says, went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. And that word fully there has the idea of complete uh, perfection. He was, if you think of God's testimony of David, he also gave this testimony that David was a man after his own heart. And here we're talking about David's, his commitment. Perfect again by no means. We know some of the life's, life and experiences of David. He fell. He sinned. He did those things that were wrong. But again, I believe it has to do with how he regarded in iniquity and how, how that affected his relationship with God. Not sinless perfection again, but... How he regarded iniquity, those things that were less than perfect in his life, is what makes the difference, as I see here in David's experience. How he regarded iniquity and his relationship with God. That relationship with God was a relationship that he was, he was uh, it was a relationship that he guarded with jealousy, I believe. And uh, we can 
covet that from David's testimony here this morning. That could God say that me? That I have followed fully after him? It's a question I have to answer. Are you following fully after God? Or are there other things that are distracting us and, and detouring us away from a complete commitment and walk with Jesus Christ? Going just a bit further in the Old Testament, it's the book of Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And if you jump ahead to, this is God, remember, this is God's testimony of Job. If you jump ahead to chapter 9, verse 20. If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. So our own evaluation, our own uh, uh, introspection of ourselves is not always accurate. Job here is saying that. He said that if I would say, you know, I'm pretty good, I, I'm pr right there, I've failed. And I think that's what he's telling us there in chapter 9, verse 20. Matthew Henry has this to say about Job. He said, his heart was sound, his eye was single. Again, not sinless perfection. Notice verse 8. Uh, if you notice, if you know, we know the story of Job here. Uh, and I'll break in here at, uh, well, his sons and daughters were feasting, everyone in his day, verse 4. And he sent and called for the, they sent and called for the three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burned offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Basically a repeat of God's testimony there in verse 1. But uh, again, the fact that Job was offering them sacrifices, uh, living out that priestly father role that he was called to, and uh, making sure that iniquity was dealt with. Again, not sinless perfection, but he, he regarded iniquity as, as that which would separate him from God. And so he went about doing and offering those sacrifices continually, it says there in the end of verse 5. Thus did Job continually. We need to continually evaluate and, and uh, regard our, our lives as Job did. Going to the New Testament, again, uh, that's in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. Luke chapter 1, verse 6. This is talking about, uh, I've got to read verse 5. This is talking about the uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. There was in the days of her the king of Judah a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance, ordinances of the Lord blameless. Again, that's a powerful testimony. Uh, both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, and blameless. Again, that blameless doesn't carry the idea of sinless. 
You know, we, if we were to read own father, they were rejoiced to see that salvation. They needed that, that baby Jesus to come into the world. And they rejoiced to see that because they needed it. Just as you and I need it today. Blameless. Again, not sinless, but blameless before God. And again, it's how they regarded iniquity. And to me, that's impressive. Everything was current between them and God. Everything was open between them and God. Everything was open between them and their fellow man, I believe. Uh, the idea of blameless is, is, is a challenge, I believe. Can we stand before God and our fellow man as, as blameless? Again, that's a challenge. Turning to John chapter 1, verse 47. Lynn mentioned in the Sunday School lesson about the foreknowledge of God, and I, I thought of this example, uh, Jesus choose, uh, choosing his 12 disciples to serve and to, uh, in their capacity with him in his earthly ministry. And here in John chapter 1, verse 47, we have the, uh, the selection of uh, Nathaniel, and I should read some of the verses uh, surrounding that here perhaps. Uh, maybe breaking in at verse 43. The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. And that has always been a challenge to me, the way he selected his disciples, simply telling them to follow him. And, he, and they seemingly did without a lot of reservation or a lot of uh, holding back. Well, I need some time to consider this. I, I'm, I'm that kind of a person. I, I like to think about things. But the way we read the scripture, it seems like they were just ready to drop all and follow him. And that's a challenge to me. Well, reading on here. Verse 44, Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knewest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, I believest thou. And thou shalt see greater things than these. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now there's a lot of... A lot of uh, Challenging thoughts in that passage of Scripture. You know, the fact that God knew Nathaniel and uh, he gave him that uh, uh, expression or that uh, acknowledgement, in whom is no guile found. And uh, again, that's, I believe, not, uh, not without guilt, perhaps. But yet, I believe there was honesty, there was integrity in this young man's life. And, uh, but without guile. And uh, I read verse 48 where Nathaniel says, Whence knowest thou me? God knows where each one of us are this morning. God is maybe scoring our lives like you teachers or former teachers did in perfection. How, perf how perfect are we? It doesn't matter. Well, yes, it does matter how I perceive you. I can see, I only see the external part. I see the fruits of your lives. But God sees you and knows you, each one of you this morning, way more intimate than that. And that's a challenging thought. We see that here in the relationship here between him and Nathaniel. God knows where we're at in our walk with him, how perfect we are. Does that concern me? Does that concern you? It ought to. 
Moving to the second part of my message, developing perfection in our lives personally. So we're talking about, we looked at some examples of where God gave the testimony of, of people that were perfect. And I, I trust that's your aspiration, my aspiration this morning too. And if it is, we ought to be interested in knowing what the scripture tells us, how that we can develop that perfection that meets God's criteria. Turning to Luke chapter 6. <clears throat> Verses 39 through 49, Luke 6. <clears throat> Verse 39 of Luke 6, reading through the end of the chapter. This is Jesus speaking here, and he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but every one that is perfect Notice that. But everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. You want to be perfect this morning? Be like Jesus. That's the number one thing I want you to take home. Follow the example of Christ in word and deed. Be like Jesus. 41. There's a lot of valuable meat here in the scripture following this. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Remember we talked about self-introspection? We sometimes get it distorted. We don't see things correctly. That's exactly what that's talking about. <clears throat> Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the moat that is in thy brother's eye. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns do men gather figs, nor of a bramble... Let me read that again. For of the thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasures of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the, for of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Remember, we're talking about following Christ. And he's saying, why call me ye Lord, and not do the things that I say? Whosoever cometh to me, and heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and digged dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood rose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Number one, you want to, you want to grow into perfection to Christ. Follow the example of Christ in word and deed. Secondly, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I want particularly that phrase, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we're, it's a process. We need to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Number two, I think we need to cleanse our lives. Flesh and spirit, it talks about. It mentions that there in verse 1. It says about we need to cleanse our lives. Flesh and spirit. Now I can see, I can see the, the flesh part of you this morning, but I can't see the spirit part of you. 
I, I like to think that I can see the fruit of that spirit that is within you. Uh, a complete cleansing is accomplished by appropriating the work of, of Jesus Christ on Calvary to my life. Uh, well, that potential is there for everyone in the whole world. Well, I optimize my potential to be perfect. And I, I was thinking about the, the spirit and flesh, and I, I pulled Daniel Coffin's book, Doctrines of the Bible, off the shelf and just looked at the doctrine of man there. And the first page, uh, I think, says it very well. And I want to just read that first uh, page inside uh, his uh, chapter on doctrines of the man. He says, The most remarkable thing about man, outside of the fact that he was created in the image of God, is his capacity for development. This is true both in the paths of righteousness and also in the ways of sin. So we have, that we have that potential to develop like Christ, or we have that potential to go the other way, away from Christ as well. We know that. We see it in our world, in our culture today. Man is of a dual nature in this, that he is both fleshly and spiritual. On the one hand, he is like God, while on the other hand, he is like the animal creation. As a being like unto God, he is intelligent, enjoys spiritual fellowship, is the possessor of a soul that has eternal existence, as a being like unto the lower animals, he is subject to the limitations of the flesh, to sickness, pain, and death. And we're, we know that. We, you know, that's very real to us sometimes. We encounter pain, sicknesses, and death. We face it face to face sometimes. Now, comparing man with God, we find him inferior to God in every point on which the comparison is made. Okay, remember that. The difference may be expressed in two words. That is finite and infinite. We are finite. God is infinite. We were talking about that in a Sunday school class. How could God know where Nathaniel was at spiritually? How can God know where each one of us, everybody in the whole wide world is spiritually? God is infinite. We are finite. Yet, as already pointed out, man has the capacity for development. His room for growth is unlimited since he may continue to grow a whole lifetime without reaching perfection. And the longer he serves God, the more he becomes like the divine model. Man's largeness depends wholly upon how fully he yields himself to God and reputates the dominion of the flesh. Reputes the dominion of the flesh. Comparing man with the lower animals, he is far above them intelligence, dominion, and power. His capacity far above them, either for good or for evil. While the lower animals are governed through instinct, man is blessed with reasoning powers, which give him an immensely larger sphere. When an animal dies, all that is left is the carcass that returns to dust. When a man dies, his body returns to dust, while the soul continues to exist forever. But when man, like the lower animals, submits to the dominion of the flesh, he sinks into the depths of depravity unknown to the animal world. Now, I think that's fascinating to realize that man has that potential to sink lower than the animal world. The practical question continually confronting us is, will we, like the lower animals, grovel in the dust? Or will we, like God, dwell in the heavenlies? I thought it was a very, very well-worded paragraph describing the, the combination of our physical and spiritual. We have that potential to, to be like Christ. Thirdly, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. First, follow the example of Christ in word or deed. Secondly, we need a cleansing of flesh and spirit. Thirdly here... Uh, I believe we can develop perfection by being a part of the body of Christ. And that's here in verse, that's in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. 
He says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now notice verse 12. It says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I don't think I myself, very, I want to say this guardedly, but I don't think I as an individual could perfect myself as, as much as being a part of a broader body of believers. We have that, we, have, we need that. We need that according to the scripture. He expects us to involve ourselves in a body, a, a, a local body of believers that we can share together. And that has a perfecting process in our spiritual development that we cannot minimize. There may be just a few, few instances where people are isolated that I'm saying, but I still think you would ultimately seek out a broader fellowship, would you not? Unless God placed you there and you're there and there's no other opportunity. I believe God could work a miracle. But we have that opportunity. God expects us to, 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 uh, to be recipients of that perfecting that takes place within the body, the church, the body of the believers. So if you or I want to be perfect, we need to be a part of that body of believers. Fourthly, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Again, we're just going back through the scripture here. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through uh, 21, tells us that it's a lifelong process. Uh, and as I thought about that, I, I, I had to think about, you know, how does God determine when someone's time is up? You know, sometimes we, we use that expression, well, God's time for him must have been up. How, how does God determine that? We talk about God knowing people intimately. And, uh, you know, when a person has reached his full potential... <laughs> Uh, as far as how perfect he's going to get in this life. How does God know that? Or how does God determine that? Um, you know, if you've been to the doctor or the hospital lately, you know, one of the first things that they, they want to know about you is they say, okay, do you have a, a living will? Or do you have a medical uh, directive? And they want to know, okay, how, how much effort do we want to put forth to keeping you alive physically here if, if, if worst-case scenario develops in whatever you're facing? And who's responsible to make those choices and decisions for you if you become incapacitated? That's one of the things they want to know. Medically, they can probably keep you living for a long time sometimes. Uh, but So they want to know that. Well, look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 8. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If I by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. Okay? Paul's saying here he's either were already perfect, but I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if, any, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing, Brethren, be followers together me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. 
For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, or our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may fashion, be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the work whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So it's a lifelong process. Uh, we need to uh, continually work at it. And even as the Apostle Paul said, we need to, if we fail, we need to, re- how, are we, how do we regard iniquity? That's the key, I think. Turn Colossians to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. I like these verses here. Forgiveness and love, I believe, go hand in hand in developing perfection in our lives. And that's what these verses here talk about. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies, Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Love is, is that thing which is going to bond perfection in our life, in our walk with Christ, in our relationship to one another. Forgiveness and love go hand in hand in developing perfection in our lives. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 is another thought that I, I wanted to uh, bring along that, along with that same truth. I'll just quickly turn back to it. Uh, talks about the bond of love. Uh, 1 John 4. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Again, a familiar verse, but God's love is perfected in us if we exhibit that horizontal love between one another. God's love will then be perfected in us. Number six, James chapter uh, 3, verse 2. This is one that comes really close home. James chapter 3, verse 2. It tells us, I'll read verse 1 also. My, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that ye shall, we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. That tells me that Perfection has to do with what I say vocally, I believe. Uh, Controlling the tongue. Speech, I believe, is a mark. My ability to speak unoffensively is a mark of perfection. Uh, You know, it tells us that no man can tame the tongue. Who can tame that tongue? It's only by committing it to the Spirit of God, allowing Him to control my, my thoughts. And as that conveys or translates into speech, it, uh, it, uh, it develops us into that perfect man that God wants us to be. You know, it's, you think of the offenses that can come from speech and the relationships added on the op- opposite side that can be built by speech. And 
It truly, our, our, our hearts, our minds need to be controlled by the Spirit of God. No man can tame the tongue. But it's a mark of perfection, I believe, that we can communicate and live in a life, the relationships without um, offenses that, uh, and develop uh, perfection in our relationships. Then seventh, First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. I believe there's a future dimension of perfection and completion that we need to keep focused on. That will keep us motivated. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So we may go through some difficult times. We may go through some suffering. But you know, that all has a refining process in our relationships with God and with others. It won't always be a perfect world. <laughs> Don't, you know that. But as we follow Christ, as we focus and appropriate his grace in our experiences, we can look forward to that eternal glory through Christ Jesus. And even though we suffer for a while, he will sometime make us perfect. Perfect. Will we know each other in glory? Will our expressions say, wow, you've changed? Well, we will probably all say that. Uh, I hope we've changed. We want to leave everything that's undesirable behind. And, uh, and it's for God's glory that we'll be able to worship together around his throne. May God be praised this morning as we think of perf- being perfect, perfection, perfection.